All right, well, we are going to continue in a new series that we're doing called Faith. We've had two weeks so far. Um, so just to recap briefly, in the first week, we, we set the course for this series, and, and we were in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, looking at how, how Paul's writing and reminding us that we were made for a home that we're not experiencing yet. We were made for a place um, that, that we have desires in our hearts for, but we don't see an experience in this life. And so we're called to a journey of faith, believing that while we don't see clearly in the here and now, that God has something for us. And that along the way, he gives us a taste of home. Heaven comes to earth. We can experience his kingdom life now. And so we have to choose to believe that and trust him. And so from there, we talked about how before we even start our journey of faith, it's God who already is believing what we don't believe. And he meets us where we are, and he kind of calls us forth into a relationship with him. He sees stuff in us we don't see in ourselves. He sees a future that we don't see, and then he promises to be with us. And so we explored that by looking at how God first met Gideon when Gideon was hiding in a cave. That was week one. And then last Sunday, we talked about the importance on our journey of faith of knowing where we're going, the importance of having an aim, a vision for the future. And so really, last week at the simplest level, we said, we die without purpose. We're lost in this life without an aim. And then secondly, we said, we've got to have a proper aim. We've got to have the right aim in order to progress and grow and, and get where we're supposed to go. And so our foundation, our aim is, is to look to not just the word of God, but the God of the word. And so we look to the scripture to give us an aim, to teach us who God is. And so that's the foundation point of this series. Um, I, I rarely will stop and say, hey, go back and listen to one of my messages. In fact, my one from two weeks ago, I never felt great about. I'm gonna tell you, don't bother. This recap was great. Um, but, but last Sunday, whether it was good or not, I just believe really strongly in what we talked about last Sunday. Um, it's an anchor point for my own life. Um, and so I would encourage you, if you're able, go back and listen to that this week. It's on our website. If you subscribe to our podcast, you can go back and listen. Um, but God's word is our foundation. Everything we're gonna build from here about how, how we grow in faith and how we follow Jesus is gonna be rooted in that reality. All right? Okay, let's pray and then we'll get started this morning. Um, Lord Jesus, we do look to you. We set our eyes on you and ask you, would you be our aim? Would you be our vision? God, help us to know how to hear your voice, to follow it clearly. God, help us to bring whatever faith we've got and to learn to trust you and walk with you more every single day. God, would you give life and meaning to this message this morning? Help me to speak clearly. God, help us to hear and receive um, not so much what I have to say, but God, what your word has to say about walking with you. And God, I pray that we would be able to hear it clearly, that it would make sense in our minds, it would take root in our hearts, and God, it would leave us um, having a firm foundation, some core things that we believe and live by. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, we're going to pick up in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. We've been looking at several verses in Hebrews chapter 11. It's somewhat of an anchor point for this series. 
And we're going to start now in Hebrews 11, verse 6. And, and my hope is that we'll see the connection of having our aim right, then connect with how we walk out uh, in faith, our relationship with Jesus. So here we go, Hebrews eleven six, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now that verse is a mouthful and there's actually a lot going on there. And the first thing we need to acknowledge is that this verse is pointing to an absolute perspective change in life, a dramatic change. The writer says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. That implies that I actually care about pleasing God. That's the starting point, that I would even care about pleasing him. Can I just tell you, I don't know about you guys, but for me, that does not come naturally. I'm, I'm pretty good at focusing on trying to please myself. I'm not good at it. I often pick all the wrong things, but that, that's my focus. That's my direction. And so the, the first thing that we're called to this morning is to have a change in perspective that it's actually desirable, worthwhile, beneficial to pursue pleasing God. Will I lay down my own pursuit of trying to please myself, or even worse, many of us fall into the trap of living to try to please somebody else. And we get trapped in these codependent relationships thinking, if I can please this other person, then they'll find some satisfaction and so will I. Man, you talk about a trap. I mean, just trying to live selfishly and please yourself will leave you wanting. But if we live trying to please other people, that's an impossible task. We won't please them and we won't be satisfied trying to do it and it'll rip us off. Anybody ever lived there before? It's a miserable way to live. And so as the, as the gospel so often does, it presents something to us that like contradicts at first. You know, Jesus said that he came to set us free and then God says, aim to please me. That sounds like bondage but he knows that it's actually freedom, that he is inviting us to learn to pursue him, to learn what it means to have a pleasurable relationship with him. And he knows that that is what will ultimately satisfy. So our first act of faith is actually to believe that that's a right aim and that it's for my benefit and my good to aim to please God. Okay, then he continues. He says, so assuming we've set our aim there, now whoever would, whoever would choose for that to be their aim and would then draw near to God, what happens? If they would choose to do that, they've got to believe some stuff. They've got to set their aim, their direction to choose to pursue him and then belief starts kicking in. And what I have to believe is a couple of things. First of all, conceptually, I must believe he exists. That God is real, he's alive, he is who he says he is. And I don't just believe that he exists, I believe that he's good. It's one thing to pursue a God who might exist. It's another thing altogether to realize he's really good. And it would actually be pretty nice to hang around with, to draw near 
the creator of the universe who's really good and loves me and, and has my best interest at heart. That takes faith. I mean, if, if you live with your eyes opened at all, everything in this world would scream the opposite of that. Everything in this world would tell us, look around, it's tough, it's difficult. Is he really a good loving God? Is he even real? Is he present? Is he present in your life? Our own, our own nature, our own desires strive for what we want and pull us away from this. But our step of faith is to choose to believe that he is a worthy aim and that pursuing him and wanting to please him is of benefit to us. Now, it doesn't stop there. Part of what's, part of what's packed into this verse is this concept of faith that my hope and prayer is we get anchored in as we further into this series. And that is that faith is both belief and action. It's the two working together. And so what he says is we have to believe that he exists and that he rewards, that he's a good God. And then what do we do? We seek him. We seek him. We pursue him. Our, our faith leads to a step of action that says, I'm going to pursue God. All right? So faith causes us to have a clear vision, a clear aim, and it leads us into believing and acting on that belief. Now, how does this actually produce something in our lives? Like, how does the rubber really meet the road? That's what we're going to really spend our time in this morning. And so we're going to start by looking at this unbelievably um, powerful statement that Jesus makes that's hard to believe is real and that he really means it. And so let's start with this crazy statement. So we're going to camp out in Matthew chapter 17 for a while now. Starting in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and we kind of pick up in the middle of a conversation here, and he says, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Hasn't that just been your faith experience your entire life? It hasn't been my faith experience. I mean, the first part is, I, I feel pretty certain that the amount of faith I have amounts to about that. That part I kind of get. I've, I've got that little bit of mustard seed faith. It's the second part that's really hard to, to believe or understand. God, you could say, I could say to this mountain, be moved. It would be moved. Nothing would be impossible for me. What are you talking about? I believe it is so important for us to understand this verse in its full context for us to even know where to start. But I want to just say from the beginning, the good news is all we need is a little bit of faith. All right, let's, let's start there. All we need is a little bit of faith. So what's the context of this story? Let's go back just a few verses. Matthew 17, verse 14 now. So they're traveling around. He's with the disciples, and, and they come to a crowd. And a man came up to him, kneeling before him, and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water, and I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. 
The first place of context in this story is that the people in need and Jesus' followers who knew and trusted him were facing what felt like an overwhelming obstacle. They were facing something that they couldn't understand and they couldn't fix and their hearts were breaking for. This poor boy's life is being ravaged as he has these seizures. And and we go on in the scripture like, There's elements of physical healing that's needed. There's elements of demonic activity going on. Like this poor young man is being ravaged. His dad is desperate saying, I need help. And then I've heard about this Jesus. So I came to his people and said, can you help me? And they couldn't. They couldn't. And so now the guy who needed help and the people who were supposed to have access to the help were all sitting there going, this feels impossible. This feels overwhelming. This obstacle is huge. Guys, if we we can't get that, we won't get anything that comes next. God's not inviting us to have faith when everything is nice and rosy and wonderful. He is in those moments too. But he's willing to point to the hardest situation we will ever find ourselves in and say in that moment, I can do miraculous things. Will you trust me? And so in the context of this situation, Jesus hears this cry that's saying, this is impossible. This is too big. This is overwhelming. And look at his response. Verse 17, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. I want you to pay attention to two things here. First of all, what Jesus says. He says, you're faithless, but then he says, you have twisted thinking. That word twisted, it means distorted. You have a distorted view of what's really going on. You've misinterpreted. The word twisted also means misinterpreted. How many times do we look at situations we're in and we misinterpret them because we don't have his heavenly perspective that sees things clearly? We have our seeing through a glass darkly perspective. We're in a bit of a fog. That's why we walk by faith, not by sight. Because we, we start learning, I can't trust what I see. I misinterpret. It means crooked. So it's just a bent perspective on reality. It can even mean to be completely turned the other way. And so what he's saying is your perspective is broken. You see incorrectly, but then you trust what you see. You trust your broken eyesight. It's faithless and it's twisted. You don't see accurately is what he's saying. And then he says, you don't look to God. He's saying, how long am I going to be here with you? Like I'm giving you, I'm the embodiment of the Father's heart. I'm the embodiment of who God is and what he wants to do. You're able to see me in the flesh but you're not seeing. And so he's saying your your perspective is twisted. Look to God for proper perspective. And then pay attention to what he does. He heals. He changes things. He intervenes into the situation and he takes action. And so he's inviting us to have a renewed perspective to, to go beyond trusting what our eyes can see. Now, now here's where this is dangerous. 
There are whole movements of faith that practice denial. Like we pretend, like the reality that we're hearing, what we're seeing, we pretend it's not real. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about practicing denial. What I'm talking about is being willing to face the reality of what we can see, but believe that there is a God that stands above that, that can see things I cannot see, who has power I do not have, who has perspective I do not have, and and do this, go from looking here to there. My gaze shifts up. I look to him for reality. That's what Jesus is pointing to. So the disciples watch all of this take place. And man, I, you know, I wish sometimes I could just like pop over for one of those campfire conversations that you know they were having in the evenings, right? Like, man, did you see what he did today? Oh, did you see the way he put Peter in his place? That was pretty funny. Like just, I would love to, to be present for some of those interactions. The one thing I'm thankful for for them is, you know, I think some of it was, was that Jesus made himself available. And I think some of it was they just had courage to come ask, but they would ask him questions. And so they come back to him. And in verse 19, the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? What are we missing? Now pay attention to what Jesus says next because it's where we started. He said to them, in answer to why couldn't we cast it out, he said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now I want to I see if you follow Jesus' logic there. He said, the problem is, why do you fail? Your faith is too small. You know how you're going to succeed? With really small faith. Did you catch that? That's what he said. The reason why you fail is your faith is too small. The reason why you're going to succeed, though, is because you have small faith. I find that to be really encouraging. Confusing. Hard to grasp. But I find it encouraging. Why is he saying this? He's saying this because he recognizes the false accusations that we hear all the time. You know the false accusations the disciples were hearing? It's the same ones we face. They were hearing, you don't have what it takes. You don't have enough to overcome this situation. It's too big for you. It is beyond you. You can't fix it. So you don't have what it takes. You don't measure up. That's one accusation they're hearing. And another accusation they're hearing is that what they're facing is impossible. It's too big. It's overwhelming. It's beyond me. So I don't have what it takes and what I'm facing is too big. And that accusation stings. It hurts. And, and why is it that we hear that accusation and it lands? I mean, I don't know about you, but that, th- those accusations have landed on my heart. They've resonated in my life that I, I don't measure up, that I don't have what it takes that what I'm facing is so beyond me and overwhelming. It lands because like all lies, it's laced with a bit of truth. There's a part of me that knows I don't have what it takes. There's a part of me that knows this life is big and overwhelming and the obstacles I face are too much. And so we often respond the way Gideon was responding two, two weeks ago where we started. We respond by doing what he did. He was in a cave 
And he was fighting, working really hard and getting, getting very little results. That's what some of us do. Some of us put our heads down and go, I know I don't have what it takes. I know this obstacle is too big, but I'm not giving up. I'm going to grit my teeth. I'm going to grin and bear it. I'm going to fight and work and tough it out. And I'm going to get through this obstacle. And we're spinning our wheels and we're working really hard. And we go like that far. And that's what Gideon was doing. Or we do the other thing that Gideon was doing in the cave, which was hiding. Instead of striving, he had just kind of said, man, this is, I'm just trying to survive here. I'm hiding in this cave. This enemy's coming and just robbing me left and right. And so forget fighting. I'm just going to try to hang out and hold on and survive. And we settle for barely surviving. Or unfortunately, some of us even just give up altogether. That's the natural human response to, I don't have what it takes and what I'm facing is overwhelming. These accusations hit hard. But there's more good news. Because in the midst of Jesus saying to them, actually, you don't have what it takes. That's why you fell short, because you had a little bit of faith. You do have what it takes, because you bring that little bit of faith that you have, and it's enough. Because there is actually more context to this story. If we back up even further the place Jesus was coming from when it said he came into town and then the disciples couldn't heal this young boy, the place he was coming from starts at the beginning of this passage. It's a little place we now call the Mount of Transfiguration. Check this out, Matthew 17, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. I mean, can you imagine? I, I, I can't really, but like they're getting a vision of Jesus like in all his glory and all his power. Like he was transformed from just kind of this dusty carpenter guy walking the streets walk in the, the deserts, all the different stuff. And instead, he, there he is in glory. There he is in white, just shining before them. And they're in awe. He's shining like the sun, it says. I mean, can you imagine they almost can't see him. They can't bear to look. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus the same thing we say when we're having a mountaintop experience. Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elisha. God, can we just camp out right here? This is awesome. Mountaintops are great. Getting a glimpse of you showing up in all your power and all your authority on the mountaintop. This is incredible. Can we live here? That's his reaction. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. So Peter's response to the mountaintop experience, can we just live here? Jesus' response to it, nope. We're going back down the mountain because there's stuff in the valley that needs to be faced. I don't want to just be the God of the mountaintop. I want to be the God that's with you in the valley. There are other people in need 
and you're going to be in need. And so we're not going to camp out up here. We're going to go down to the valley. So what does he say? Verse 7, but Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, I think that is both a statement of reality because Moses and Elijah had disappeared. I also think it's a statement of how we face obstacles. Instead of seeing all the stuff, I look up and see Jesus only. And so here he is in all of his glory. They see Jesus only, and they're able to get up and walk and follow him. They're able to not be in fear any longer. Now, I I want you to catch this. Think about this for a minute. Think about the story that we just told, okay? They're on the mountaintop. They see Jesus in all of his glory. They want to camp out and live there. Jesus says, no, we're not going to do that, but fear not, stand up and come with me. They go down the mountain into the valley. They approach this overwhelming obstacle. The disciples, even in the midst of what they just saw, aren't able to help heal this guy. Jesus intervenes, touches his life, and then he has a conversation with them. And he says, if you have a little bit of faith, you can move this mountain. Do do you see what he's doing? He's not just saying with a little bit of faith, you can move any mountain. He's calling them to remember what they just saw. He's saying, look to me, I'm the king of the mountain. I'm the guy up on that mountaintop that's got this. And I'm letting you catch a vision. I'm letting you see clearly who I am so that you can have faith. Yeah, you know what? You don't have what it takes on your own. And you know what? The obstacles you face are overwhelming and too big for you on your own. But you are not alone. I am with you and I'm the king of that mountain and those obstacles and I am present in your life. So the tiny little bit of faith that you can muster, don't worry about whether it's enough or not. Guys, the point of faith is not about how much of it we've got. The point of our faith is the object of our faith. Who am I looking to? Who am I trusting in? Am I trusting in my ability to have enough faith or am I trusting in the God who's the king of that mountain? And so he calls us, he calls us to that place where we look to him. See, here's, here's the cycle of faith. I don't know if you noticed this, but it almost feels like repetitious. Um, we've looked at two or three stories this morning. They're all kind of saying the same thing. We looked at passages last week. They were saying the same thing. We start with our aim. We get our eyes right on Jesus and we have a little bit of faith to believe that what I'm seeing is real. And then I take that faith that I just received by looking to him and I seek him. I I look at him some more. And while I'm looking at him some more, you know what I get? A little bit more faith. And this cycle continues where I choose to lift my eyes up from what I can see, which is myself not being enough and the difficulties of this life I'm facing. And I look back to him and I find renewed strength and trust because my eyes are on him and it grows and it builds. 
The reason he uses the image of a seed is not just that it's small. It's that it grows when it's planted in the right place. And so we take the little bit we've got and we plant it in him and we do what the scripture calls us to do. We are rooted and grounded in Christ. And I learn to seek him for the sake of relationship, trusting and believing that it is actually for my good that I live to please him rather than trying to fix stuff for myself and everybody else because I can't do that. Is this making sense? Okay, I want to finish with a story and then we'll get out of here. Y'all good? Y'all with me? Okay, we're going to return to Gideon now, the other side of the story. So God patiently and lovingly invites him out of that cave. They go, go through this whole conversation and Gideon's wrestling with his doubts and the Lord just patiently is there with him as he's wrestling through his doubts and hangs in there. And now Gideon's, Gideon's start, starting to believe a little bit. Hey, I came out of that cave. Hey, I tore down some places where we worshiped idols and I'm, God, I'm really starting to believe that you're with me here. And so he's now responding to God's call to set his people free from this enemy, from the king of Midian and all of his army that are ripping them off. They've enslaved them, they're stealing from them, and they're just eking by. And Gideon's starting to get a sense, maybe, man, maybe this can actually happen. Maybe God can see us through getting past this enemy. So here's what happens. You can go read chapter 11, Judges chapter 11 on your own, but let me kind of encapsulate this. The army of Midian is 120,000 soldiers strong. And after Gideon is done rallying the army of Israel that's going to help fight, he's got 32,000, all right? 120,000, 32,000. That's like four to one, roughly, about four to one odds, okay? So he's having a conversation with the Lord. God looks at that and says, eh, I don't like these odds too much. Why don't you give everyone who's scared permission to go home? Just tell them if they're nervous, they can go home. He's like, all right. That, that, that makes sense, right? We want the people that really believe and that can fight. So he says, okay, if you're nervous, if you're scared, you can go home. And they lose two-thirds. And so now he's down to 10,000. Now we're at like 12 to one odds. So every one of us has to defeat 12 of them. That, that's sounding like a lot. And so, of course, God looks at that and says, eh, I still don't like these odds too much. Let's weed a few more people out. So why don't you just do this really random thing? Just tell the guys to go drink by this brook, by this body of water here, get a drink. And they're, pro they're all gonna do it in two different ways. And some of them are gonna lap it up like a dog with their tongue. And so let's just identify those two sorts and you separate them out. So Gideon's like, okay, that makes sense. People drinking water like dogs, that's kind of a weird group. Let's weed them out. And so they do that and there's 300 of them that are drinking it, lapping it up like dogs. And God goes, those are the 300 we want. <laughs> Because you got to be kidding me. I thought they were the 300 we were getting rid of. That's all that's left. And they send everybody else home. 300 against 120,000 is 400 to one odds. And God says, that seems about right. Now, I don't know if you notice this or not, but you know what, you know what God's actually doing here? He's reinforcing the part of the accusation that's true. The part of the accusation that's true, you aren't enough and the obstacle's too big. He's actually reinforcing that. 
I'm shrinking this down so you know for certain there is no possible way you guys did this on your own. But I'm adding the full truth to the story because I'm with you and I'm going with you and fighting for you and we are going to overcome this enemy. And so the night before, I love what God does here. It's so encouraging. He doesn't just leave Gideon guessing what might happen. He actually says, I want you to go sneak down into the camp and hear what the enemy thinks about you guys. And so Gideon sneaks down into the camp and this is what he hears. Judges 7 verse 13. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, that's their camp, and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and it turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. You know who was scared by the odds being 400 to 1? Probably Gideon. But you know who was really scared of those odds? The enemy was scared of those odds. Because the enemy understands the power of a person who's willing to trust the God of the universe. And if the God of the universe is on his side, they cannot be stopped. The enemy knows that and he sees that. And so the primary thing that he wants to do is rip us off from learning to put our faith in God. Because if we can get our eyes on who God is, instead of on who we are and the obstacle we're facing, he knows we're beat. But if we keep our eyes on who God is and off of that stuff, we can't lose. We can't lose. And so they win. They're defeated. Here's the plan. It's awesome. Hey, not only are the 300 of you going to go fight, all you're going to take with you is a torch with a jar over it and a trumpet in your hand. That's how the 300 of you are going to win. Great plan. You know what they say? Sure. Okay, we'll do it. And they do. And they win. It's awesome. And you know what they had no doubt about? There was no part of them that thought, we did this. They knew their God had done it. And so they worshiped him and they were in awe of him. Guys, that's what, that's what we're called to. Listen, it is, it is evident to me on a regular basis that I don't measure up and that things are overwhelming. But what I want to be more and more evident in my life and I, I pray in our lives is that we're able to lift our eyes up that our aim is on him. We remember he's the king of the mountain and I can take what little faith I've got and plant it in that reality and watch what he does. One of my favorite little moments in life, Micah, can I tell a little story about you, buddy? Thank you. Like I'm giving you much of a choice. You're a good boy. One of my favorite, favorite memories as a dad. And I might've told this story a year ago when it happened because I was a pretty proud dad. Um, but my son Micah gets to play in this special needs basketball league every year. And so last year, 
they got to go play a game at the end of the season at halftime on the court at UT. And so they're out there on the court. He's the smallest player on the court because he was playing with the older kids. And the, the folks in the stadium were going nuts for him. Like when he would get the ball and start drawing, they were going nuts. And this tiny little guy is in this huge court with all these people, and he's getting to play basketball in front of these screaming fans. And people like stayed in their seats at halftime when they realized what was happening. It was really cool. So that was a neat story, but that wasn't the coolest part. Micah comes home from that, goes to bed that night, wakes up the next morning. I mean, he's just beaming about this basketball game. And my son, who had not been able to ride a two-wheel bike his entire life, we're sitting in the house that afternoon. We've already bought him like this four-wheel, cool-looking, it looks like a go-kart, but you pedal it, it's a pedal cart, and just go, man, there's your bike, buddy. And so all of a sudden, Kate comes running in the house and goes, Micah's riding his bike, Micah's riding his bike. And he had gone into the garage, picked up Kate's two-wheel bike with no training wheels on it, and just started riding it. And it was like, he was thinking, well, dude, if I can play on the court at UT, I can ride a bike. <laughs> and he was just going in a circle and laughing in delight. That's what God wants to do for us. Guys, the, the reason he invites us into this kind of faith, the reason he calls us to action is not because he needs us to accomplish the miracle. The reason he invites us into action is the same reason I invite my kids to do projects with me around the house. It usually doesn't help. Sometimes it makes it harder. You know why I do it? Because I love spending time with them and I want to help them grow. And that's what he's up to. He invites us to engage with him even in the hardest things that we face. Yeah, he's got it and he can do it on his own, but he wants to do it with us because he loves us and he wants to help us grow. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are good. And God, I choose to believe that even when everything else around me is saying the opposite. Even when the reality that I can see contradicts it, even when the voice of the enemy and his accusations say it's not true. God, I choose to believe that you're good. And God, I'm not gonna deny my own shortcomings and I'm not going to pretend like the obstacles I face aren't real. God, I'm just going to choose to believe that you're the king over those obstacles and that you are with me and you are for me. And that if I bring even the tiniest faith that I can muster, it's enough because you are enough. God, help us to live like that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.